You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. A saying that's attributed to Mark Twain is, never pick a fight with a man who buys ink by the barrel. And that's been the rule. A rule that presidents have rarely listened to. As President Kennedy said to a group of newspaper executives, we'll have to find a way to get along here for the time that we are together until my time here is done and we go our separate ways. Presidents have fought with, cooperated with, manipulated, sometimes even financed the press. Rarely have they been merely passive agents. The presidency is too powerful, it seems, not to intersect at some point with force that has always been powerful in America, the press. Abigail Adams, an informal advisor to her husband, the second president of the United States, John, supported the war measures, the sedition acts, that Congress, under Federalist control during the Adams presidency, passed to shut down newspapers that were attacking the government and inspiring opposition. It was a crime under these acts to say anything false, malicious, or slanderous, or anything that would defame the Congress or the president or put the government in ill repute. As Abigail Adams said, the liberty of the press has become licentious beyond the former period. Sixteen indictments were handed out under the Sedition Acts. And Republican editors James Callender and Benjamin Franklin Bach were jailed. Callender was pardoned by Jefferson, something Abigail would never forgive her old friend Jefferson for. Nor did she have any sympathy when the man she referred to as the snake, then attacked Jefferson after being pardoned. As far as Adams was concerned, he got what he deserved for freeing a slanderer. Benjamin Franklin Bach and James Callender were no Woodward and Bernstein. They were no Jack Andersons. They weren't Edward Murrows. They weren't well respected. They were hard people to love. Of course, if they were on your side, if you supported the mostly the Republican positions they advocated, you liked the fact that they were out there putting out their papers. But if you're a Federalist, or if you're someone that didn't think that George Washington should be called a debaucher, you might have a different opinion. Attitudes towards the press were different in early America. The press were not well regarded. Newspapers got their money from one party or another, usually. And so while today the Sedition Acts seem disturbing, and indeed many at the time thought they were, and they were quickly repealed, the government had just started. There were many foreign agents operating in America. 
We were close to war with France, and it seemed like a good idea at the time. Since Adams, no president has really signed any laws uh, directly attacking the press like that, but every president has handled press differently. Teddy Roosevelt, media master of the uh, late Inc. age, used to, uh, used to greet reporters in the lobby of the White House. When reporters were outside, he'd let them in if it was raining, talk to them. Wilson did the first official press conferences, though quickly there were complaints about how managed they were. Kennedy used to shun the big columnists and sneak in nobodies into the Oval Office for interviews with the president. Of course, he expected good coverage in exchange for the access. He also complained about the coverage he was getting in the Republican paper, the New York Herald, and eventually canceled his subscription. But at a meeting of newspaper publishers, he was his charming self. In the 60s and the 50s, the newspapers trended Republicans. They were usually owned by big business people, chamber of commerce types in the towns. It was one of the many reasons that Kennedy sought the new medium of TV to get his message out. His conferences were televised. My purpose here tonight, Kennedy said at the speech with newspaper publishers, is not to deliver the usual assault on the one-party press, Kennedy said. Nor is it my purpose to discuss or defend the televising of presidential press conferences. I think it's highly beneficial to have some 20 million Americans regularly sit in on these conferences to observe, if I must say so, the incisive, the intelligent, and the courteous qualities displayed by your Washington correspondents. That's the way to handle the press, right? Joking, charming, politicians should be politicians. Leave the attacking to the press. Mark Twain, ink by a barrel. Well, the Obama administration has recently shown a little bit of a different tack. The needed communications at the White House implied that Fox was not a legitimate news channel. Rahm Emanuel, much the same, where you're not going to pretend it's a legitimate news source. David Axelrod joined in. Fox News immediately claimed that they were under attack. The Obama administration did take it a step farther. They attempted to freeze out pool coverage of the new Pazar, Kenneth Feinberg. Everyone but Fox News was allowed. The other TV networks protested. No one would cover Feinberg if Fox News would not cover it. I suspect the media thought that perhaps, I mean, not in this administration, but another administration, they could be next. Bill O'Reilly, Glenn Beck, other members of the Fox News team almost salivated over the attack on them from the White House. Gave them something to talk about for days. Conventional, nearly universal opinion is that this is a mistaken strategy on the part of the Obama White House. It's a very risky strategy and one I would not advocate, said David Gergen. Worked for Reagan, Clinton, and Nixon. Ink by the barrel. Don't fight the media. They can keep coming at you and coming at you. And a president has a limited amount of time. And I have a mixed opinion on the whole ink by the barrel issue. Although I will say at first that probably it's taking it too far to start freezing out networks of... Any network that has an audience, even if it's an audience you don't like, start freezing them out uh, from access... The pool uh, thing was was probably not advisable. 
but have a different opinion on the statements made by the White House or whether a White House is free to operate in the political debate, let's say, to say, hey, this organization, we don't consider them to be completely objective. We consider them to be against this administration. Um, I think it's unrealistic to expect the White House not to participate in the political foray. Maybe not the president himself, the White House. I mean, after all, in the old days, you know, under Wilson, it was him out there in the press conference, maybe an aide. Now there's a 24-hour communications wing in, in every modern White House. So why should we pretend they don't participate in this game? Despite the conventional wisdom, despite Gergen's comment, the comment of so many others, I was listening to uh, Dan Carlin's Common Sense, and he had just uh, called this attack on Fox News a, a, a misguided strategy. And I think if you do think of it as an attack on Fox News directly from the White House, then uh, sure, why are you spending your time attacking uh, media? The word attack, I think, is coming from other news outlets and from Fox News itself. You know, I mean, I think there's a certain amount of uh, audience boost they get out of being uh, attacked. Dan Carlin had a different tack, which I thought was interesting. Tell, uh, have the White House go out there, basically say, hey, the reason Fox News has these ratings is that they got a lock on the whole conservative audience. And uh, perhaps the administration could do something to help to set up some competition to sort of uh, play the antitrust card a bit. Hey, you've got the whole conservative audience. Let's set up some competition. I like the, uh, at least half of that, I like the idea of, a, of uh, from a strategy point of view, I think it would be more advisable to kind of handle it uh, that way to kind of say, hey, uh, this is the conservative channel. I thought the White House was kind of doing that, and I almost think any statement they make is going to be hopped on. Very competitive atmosphere right now. And from the White House point of view, well, you got Rahm Emanuel flexing their muscle a bit right now in the White House. And I think um, for two reasons. One, helps shore up the base. You know, this is kind of a beat up on Fox News a bit. The base likes it. Give them a little raw meat. I also think it's definitional, and that might be something that David Gergen and others are missing here. Uh, Fox News is the anti-Obama channel. Doesn't mean everyone's going to believe them. I think it's beyond argument that Fox News is a conservative station. I mean, essentially started by Roger Ailes. It's not just a Republican, but a Republican whose job it was to use the media to destroy Democrats. I think the station has roots in that. I think obviously on the opinion side, it's clearly leans more Republican or conservative. I don't often I don't often hear people defending Fox News in that way. Fox News's tagline is fair and balanced. I think if you talk to most conservatives, the usual defense is well, look at the New York Times or look at Channel, uh, look at Dan Rather or look at um, you know there's so many other uh, sources of news. I think few people could defend that Fox News is not a station with a conservative slant. And so I think the White House has every right to not just sort of accept that it's just one of 10 stations out there. But I guess you got to participate with it. And, you know, we don't, we're not quite in the, we're sort of getting back, and in terms of media, we're sort of getting back to the old days where you do have your information coming from the partisan channel that you like. One of the things great about podcasting, if you listen to like the Carl, Dan Carlin show, or you listen to myself, or 
is because we're not uh, sponsored by big corporations, uh, we can be independent in terms of the viewpoint, nonpartisan, just have our own view. I think once you get into regular media, let's say talk radio, you're either going to be on a station that's aiming at a conservative audience, or you're going to be on Air America, a station that's aiming at a uh, liberal audience. Either way, you're going to have to do a red meat ideological show to keep a rating going. Uh, podcasting offers a different outlet, so new media is probably you know helpful there. We're still, you know, in terms of the major media, there's been a polarization. So we're kind of back to the old days where, you know, you look at Lincoln's time, you had at the New York Times was a big, you know, Republican newspaper. You know, there's still a few newspapers out there, the Arkansas Democrat, that have that name in them still. Uh, they used to, these used to be party organs. We're not quite there, but I, st- so I don't think you can completely disregard any major media news challenge just sort of freeze them out, like not have uh, President Obama appear on them. That's probably not going, that's not a successful tactic. But I really do delineate between those things, the sort of freezing out type tactics, the access tactics, and the, that, that really aren't productive, and the White House participating in politics, essentially, and participating in a debate rather than let someone walk all over them. I don't see any real. I, 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 I do see those two things as different. You're hearing a lot of comparisons to Nixon. What's interesting is Nixon's strategy, at least in when the Watergate stories came out, at least through his press secretary Ron Ziegler, was to attack the Washington Post for running these unsubstantiated stories. Now this is interesting because what I would point out, as opposed to Uh, many pundits who are saying this is just an unproductive strategy, look, it's like Nixon, is actually the strategy worked. (laughs) Nixon kept that Watergate story out of the main media for quite a long time. I mean, at least half a year, definitely through his re-election campaign. It was only the Washington Post running those stories. The problem was Nixon was wrong, (laughs) and the stories were right. (laughs) So, uh, he could claim he wanted all this bias and etc. They were running something that was absolutely uh, right. Don in Los Angeles writes in regards to the Nobel Prize uh, episode, I love it that Barack Obama won the Nobel for doing nothing more than continuing George Bush's policies. And he goes on to say, Gitmo will not be closed, rendition still in place, and we're still talking about another 40K troops in Afghanistan. Going to be three times as many troops and four times the casualties of Bush. Plus, we're using indiscriminate predator bombing. A couple things there with uh, Don's comments. I think that the Nobel, uh, I think it was more of a push, a little bit of pressure on the part of the uh, Norwegians. <laughs> uh, domestically, it's probably limited in that it, uh, in what it did for the president because of all the brouhaha over it here. But I do think it probably helped him in terms of his image in the world a bit. I do think it's sort of them making a statement, this is the type of policy they want. You know, it may not work. It may, it may be now that with all the attention on it that it, it wasn't effective. You could make a case that Barack Obama is, um, you know, and the thing that I point out is to, if Barack Obama decides to truly adopt the policies of of Bush and makes a preemptive attack on a country, uh, what does the Nobel Peace Prize Committee do? 
You could make a case that Barack Obama is continuing the policies that Bush adopted in late 07 to late 08, a time in which Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were engaged in one of the largest primary fights ever. And once Obama was handed the keys to the car, if you will, you're sort of stuck with the car that you have. We have troops in Iraq and Afghanistan. So I think there's a big difference between the Bush policies of 06 and 05 and the Bush policies of 07 and 08. Obama didn't need to scale down Iraq because the Bush administration already started doing that. You know, after the time that the presidential campaign started, the Democrats had taken over Congress. TARP was in place. I do wonder, for instance, if Bush was in office for, say, another year, if there would have been a $700 billion stimulus package passed, or whether that would have been vetoed, reduced, or postponed. Other key policy changes, and domestically, I mean, this administration of the Democratic Congress is embarking on what would be a rather a rather large domestic policy change. Just the health care overhaul itself, having health care for virtually all Americans is a step. And then if you consider that they are looking at some kind of government financed option, this is a significant change that there is absolutely no way the Bush administration would support. So at least on that domestic side, it's very hard to compare the two. If you look at the Social Security privatization that Bush was attempting to do in uh, 2005, that's just a non-starter in uh, this administration. Foreign policy-wise, you know, it, it's a little closer to what you're saying. Obama's made some minor changes. Probably the biggest changes between Bush and Obama have been about rhetoric and tone. For instance, Obama does not seem to use the term war on terror. That is meaningful to the world outside, I do think, to a degree. Uh, but anyone who's a, a Bush supporter is probably right to claim, hey, you know, he made such a big deal out of this, and now this guy's not that much different. Uh, he has uh, emphasized Afghanistan over Iraq. Obama's not Bush. I don't think the comparison's there. But you could make a case, especially given all the celebration of liberal supporters that perhaps thought they were getting this new, you know, peace peace president, uh, not exactly uh, going to happen. Um, as you indicate, we are escalating in Afghanistan. There can be an argument made that it was the, quote, right war at the time in, in 2001. A uh, very successful operation. One that doesn't get talked about a lot. Uh, probably something I'll do a, a topic on uh, in and of itself. You know, roughly a thousand Marines secured Afghanistan and to, to an extent drove the uh, Taliban out. Now, how did they do it? Of course, they used CIA. They used some of the predator drones. They used bribing. They used intelligence. They used uh, the Northern Alliance. They used allies and warlords and things that they could do with minimal troops. It's kind of a success story. Um, there's some books on it, and uh, you know, really have to talk more about that. I suppose many liberals will say President Obama is not matched candidate Obama. I'm just less surprised by that, and I'm less surprised by any kind of lack of radical change because I, I suppose I'll look at it historically. Presidency is a management job. It means more than that. It's leadership and inspiration involved, but in this sense, it is a day-to-day management job. Uh, that's why I don't think we've ever had a truly liberal president. You can't just be there banging your, 
you know, fist on the on the ground. It's a you're responsible for what goes on in the country day to day, or you're held responsible. You know, the first first one to come to mind, of course, would be Kennedy. You can say that Kennedy and indeed Johnson implemented some liberal domestic programs or advocated for them, but they're both very hawkish on defense. FDR was never uh, as liberal as the left in America behind him. I mean, he had powerful liberal critics who wanted him to do more. So he's sort of a moderating influence in a way. Now, if we had gotten something like a Brian, William Jennings Bryan presidency, I think you would have seen a radical distribution of of uh, of things. Have you ever been on in a job or in an office with say to say this five uh, peer employees and everybody goes to lunch together and hangs out after work and things like that and you're all friendly and all of a sudden one becomes the boss. You know, it's a simplification, but that's kind of what the presidency's like. You know, when the candidate turns into a president, day to day you're responsible for what's going on. So you're trying to pass your domestic agenda. And things are going on outside in the world, too, which sort of keeps you at bay a bit from doing anything too radical. And you're always going to need people, so you can't get anybody too angry. Hillary Clinton wrote in her memoirs about how right when they were going to really uh, do a big launch on health care, that's when the uh, incident in Somalia happened. And so the incident in Mogadishu big distraction and it, it, it definitely hurt the momentum on healthcare. You can only spend so much time on domestic affairs. Day to day you're responsible. That's why I think you're mostly seeing centrist presidents throughout history. And I believe Obama is perhaps left of center, but truly a centrist president. Yeah, look, I mean, even in his campaigning, some of his positions were fairly middle of the road. His healthcare plan was a bit more conservative than his most, quote, liberal issue as a candidate and what really helped him to defeat Hillary Clinton was the issue of Iraq. And to some extent, the, to some extent, the scale down of that um, that occurred took the one issue that could have been a radical change for this new president off the table. Drastic foreign policy changes are rare between presidents. You certainly see it here. You have the same defense secretary, even though you do have a different secretary of state, of course. Uh, Clinton continued Bush's Somalia policy, and he suffered for it. Kennedy continued um, the Bay of Pigs operation that was planned before his time, being during the Eisenhower presidency. Of course, he suffered for it. Eisenhower was nice enough to show up at Camp David in support of Kennedy after that, and Nixon, too, showed up at the White House. Very different times. And a little show of bipartisan support when things got tough in the country. Nixon got his turn at the wheel, and uh, he thought he could rewrite Vietnam and do something radically different from the Johnson Vietnam policy. Found it difficult in the first two years. Until he could get to China, until he get some leverage on the North Vietnamese, he was in the same boat. It's early yet, and time will tell what Obama's mark on the world will be. Jeff said, I appreciated your description of Eleanor Ostrom's work. I only heard of her once she won the Nobel Prize, but I found her work very interesting. Curious to know your source for that. Um, I think uh, mostly it was from a book review of her 1990 book. Um, I wish I had that at the time of recording this. On the website, uh, 
Under the Nobel Peace Prize, in the comments section, I list a Forbes article. You can also get information on Eleanor Ostrom. You know, the URL is too big to, to read here. So Ostrom's work, you know, could a group of insurance companies manage a healthcare population through a group run by themselves? How would they police that none of them only take the cream of the crop and they all share in the burden of those who are the most sick? A group run by themselves. The foxes guarding the hen house in a sense, right? But it's not a market, nor is it truly a government. Ostrom says, if sheep farmers can manage fields, well, they all would have an advantage to cheat as well. Why not? The same advantages to cheating are there as with the advantages to cooperation. And if people know that there are rules, they're being enforced, and they're being fair, treated fairly, it actually, they behave a lot better than we give them credit for. You may not need to, re, to resort to a competitive market all the time, or a coercive government all the time. There's something in between. I think it's an idea at the right time, that's for sure. It can apply to so many issues. Just as a little bit of an examination of that. Do people behave better when they think there are fair rules? Try something when you're on the road. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm often in traffic here in a busy metropolitan area. If you're driving and you're in a merging situation, you know, I tend to find that if you let the person in front of you go, not all the time, but most of the time, the person in back of me is not as aggressive about, you know, cutting me off and getting getting ahead of me. I think a lot of the panic and a lot of the anarchy comes out of the situation like, I'm never going to get down this road. No one's, no one's merging, so I'm not going to. They see someone merging, they see rules being followed, then there tends to be more order. Try that little experiment and, you know, let me know what you, what you find. Brett Miller writes, I saw the really good docudrama of a Winston Churchill on HBO called Into the Storm. It was interesting to see how this leader who led the country, who had the country's full support during the war, dumped him so quickly once the war is over. And thanks, Brett. Yes, and it wasn't a shock, actually, for most Britons, and actually not a shock for Churchill when it actually came down to the election. Britain liked Churchill as a war leader, but they generally did not like his conservative domestic policies. Uh, the labor leader, Clement Attlee, was sworn in uh, as soon as the war with Germany was over. So thank you very much. Thanks for doing something, but now uh, you're done. Churchill knew he was going to be defeated, and in fact, he brought Attlee to the Potsdam Conference because he knew that this guy was probably going to be the next prime minister. We almost did that in 1948. In fact, um, now, of course, Truman wasn't the same as Churchill. He didn't lead us through the whole war. But if Truman was up in 46 or 47, he might have lost. I mean, 46 was a very bad midterm for Democrats. Republicans won that. Timing's important in politics, of course. Had George H.W. Bush ran for re-election in 1991, he likely would have been re-elected. By 92, his foreign policy victory was forgotten, or at least not given priority. Brett Miller further writes, In general, 
Does the U.S. and other countries have the habit of only going for the labor candidate when things are especially bleak, but then go for the conservative candidate when times are good? That's a big question and so big that it, you know, it might be a whole topic and I could go through the elections and just sort of see what the, the pattern is. But the economy was not in ruins in 1912, nor in 1976, when Democrats beat Republicans for the presidency and challenging new Democrats beat incumbent Republicans, nor in 1892 or in 1960, 1892, when Grover Cleveland won. It wasn't a horrible uh, economy. It actually got horrible once he took office, unfortunately for him and the Democrats, but wasn't horrible when he won. And 19, you know, he won on the tariff and a couple other issues. 1960, not a horrible economy. There was a little topper of a bit uh, at the end of the 1960, which Nixon sort of blamed for his election, but it was mostly based on foreign policy. The one, the one thing those four-year shares, the Republican campaigns were weak in those years. So weak in 1912, the Taft only won Utah. But in 1932, 1876, 1992, and 2008, those years fit exactly what you're saying. Economic times are bad, and the Democrats won. But there's at least a third situation where Democrats can win, and that's when they have the incumbent Democratic president. And that explains 1936, 1940, 1944, 48, 64, uh, 96, as well as 1916, Wilson's re-election. So now you've got at least three reasons why Democrats win. Conversely, they lost, and Democrats uh, did, in 1860 and 1896, when times were bad. So if they're in office, they don't benefit when economic times are bad are bleak. So I think, unfortunately, and, and sorry about it, but the, the thesis is shattered. It's just too loose. There's too many sort of exceptions. But let's say this, a bleak economic situation certainly helps if a Democrat is challenging a Republican. In other countries, that's harder for me. I don't have the complete knowledge of all the elections, maybe better in the UK than any other country. Um, labor, new labor, one in uh, 1997, but that was a pretty good time for the economy. And then uh, Neil Kinnock, the labor candidate uh, in 1992 when the economy was not so good uh, here or in Britain, could not muster up the seats needed to defeat John Major and his conservative government in 1992, although partially that was because the liberal Dems, which are another sort of left-leaning party in England, took some of the seats from Kinnock's party. So, kind of hard to measure. You know, I, I guess an election that would fit in there foreign-wise, 1981 was a very big year when Francis Mitterrand became president of France, and the socialists took over France. It was seen as a liberal victory. I don't really have enough there to make a, to really make the thesis work. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? 
Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Chris Patron writes, And Bruce, in your podcast regarding Richard Nixon and whether Eisenhower wanted to dump Nixon from the 1956 ticket, you said that only Martin Van Buren was elected president from the VP spot. I believe the following, including Van Buren, were sitting VPs and were elected to the presidency. John Adams succeeded Washington, succeeded Washington, and Jefferson succeeded Adams. Van Buren was certainly Jackson's pick and won election. And finally, George H.W. Bush was elected in 1988. Thanks, Chris Patron. Well, thanks, Chris. Um, you are correct, I mean, to start with, that other sitting VPs were elected, and those are the VPs that were. But in this case, actually, uh, since we were doing our, you know, quote, interview with uh, Dwight Eisenhower, um, you'd be correcting him. Now, in his memoirs, he was referring to conversation he had with Nixon, at least his side of the story. Nixon thinks it's different, where he only, and in his memoirs, he only mentioned uh, Van Buren. I think his prob- his point or the context of it probably had more to do with sitting VPs of a giving, given party than winning the presidency, although I don't think he specified that in the book. Jefferson was a sitting VP, very much a different party uh, faction than Adams. In fact, he was undermining Adams. Adams was a Federalist in history books, at least, but Neither Washington nor Adams accepted parties when applied to the presidency. Washington did endorse Adams, want Adams to win, and it wouldn't apply to G.H.W. Bush because at the time Eisenhower wrote the memoirs, of course, it was only... It's still pretty uncommon after all this time that George H.W. Bush won in 1988, and each year we get farther and farther away from it. Still fairly uncommon for vice president, sitting vice president, to win the presidency. Kevin Hagler writes, Bruce, I am a big fan of your show. I've been listening to your podcast obsessively ever since I found them on iTunes earlier this summer. I host a little radio show at Kennesaw State, and I try to model aspects of my show after your podcast. I was hoping you could do a podcast about the history of the Supreme Court in relation to judicial activism versus judicial restraint. Is judicial activism exclusive to liberal judges? I was also wondering if you could talk a little bit about the history of progressive liberals and why Many who were once called liberals would now prefer to be called progressives today. Is it just semantics, or has there been a paradigm shift in left-leaning ideologies? Okay, Kevin, uh, so much there. Uh, first of all, I wanted to mention that uh, big supporter, of course, of college radio, and I uh, was on college radio a little while ago now, you know, WLFR Pomona, Richard Stockton College of New Jersey near Atlantic City. Uh, still broadcasting, great station, was just down there for the, make sure I get this right, the 25th anniversary of the station being an FM station. That's a small, not a, not a very big signal, but a great station, totally free form. 
I didn't do history down there. I did uh, music radio. So great way to learn. I'm a big fan of the radio medium. I'm not really a, as enamored with video. I shouldn't say that. I watch a lot of historical DVDs. I still just like radio. You can do something else while you're listening. You know, you don't have to be glued to a screen. Uh, in terms of the Supreme Court, uh, yeah, I'm going to do more about the Supreme Court um, as we move along here. So I won't address that too much. I doubt that activism is only uh, applied to liberal judges. Uh, one could say that in the 19th century, conservatives started really enforcing law in a way that one could consider, you know, activism. Um, about the term liberal and progressive, uh, liberal, you know, these terms are are so uh, vague, I think, sometimes, and it just depends on how the person intends to use it now. The term liberal, I mean, I mean, if you're an economic liberal, then you're someone who believes in free markets. So someone might call that a conservative here. So it's just, you know, social liberal. Sure, you want more rights for people. It's just, it's very difficult terms, and I think they mean what people want them to mean. Liberals become a bit of a peculiarative now, and that probably that process probably started in the 60s and 70s. Liberals attach now to, well, you're tagging, I'm going to, you know, make your taxes higher, that kind of thing. So we prefer the term progressive. Uh, progressive, you know, I would say from the 1890s forward to the 20s, where you use the term progressive and it had a very complimentary meaning and it meant someone who wanted reform in the political system, wanted to take politics out of the hands of a few bosses and break up a big trust corporations, very often were in line with those political bosses who wanted change. It is rhetoric to an extent, and there are some elements of the progressive movement that are not too good. I mean, not, you know, eventually they came around, but initially uh, not all progressives supported a woman's right, women's rights, and progressives have, you know, kind of off and on record on a civil rights for blacks. It was not a, those same periods of the progressive era were not a great time for integration in the United States. I also just think when you hear the term progressive, yeah, I, I think you got to take it for what it is. It is a rhetorical term, and I think it's a great term for people to use. It just sounds good, so you want to call yourself a... Uh, Charles Stafford writes, Bruce, excellent podcast. I stumbled onto it when downloading Dan Carlin's Common Sense and tried out the healthcare episode first. Was so impressed I downloaded all available and have been listening uh, to them continuously all week. Still reviewing the archives, so if you've already covered this topic, I apologize. In each podcast, you cite some examples or allude to planks of each major party at various points in history. However, the two major parties have been around for almost 200 years in one form or another. How about a podcast about the origins, history, and current state of the party, as well as any notable candidates or third parties from the past, Whigs, Federalists, Green, etc.? Maybe a podcast for each major party. Certainly a lot of materials. Well, there is the old saying that if Lincoln were alive and saw the Republicans today, he'd secede. And if Jefferson were alive and saw the Democrats today, he'd start a revolution. And there's some truth to it and some lie to it as well. It's kind of true. I mean, the parties have changed. But some of that original essence is there in both parties. The Democratic Party goes back directly. You could take the line directly to the Democratic-Republican Party. And that's sort of a historian's term because a lot of times the term Republican was used to describe the party that really can now trace its roots to the Democrats. Kind of confusing, huh? So maybe you say 
again, another historian's term, Jeffersonian Republicans to sort of distinguish between the two. Jefferson and Jackson were kind of seen as the the, the ancestors of, of the Democratic Party were little guy politicians of their time. So that way they weren't that different from the, the type of rhetoric that you hear now from some Democrats or you know, FDR, things like that. They, they fought against banks, which were the large corporations of those time. You know, they wanted more rights for people. They wanted more people to vote. Politics tended towards those whose lot in life was smaller in American life. Small farmers, small businessmen, merchants, craftsmen. You can contrast and compare. I mean, while Jefferson railed against the big cities, so one might say, well, he hasn't, he was, that was, his party was a farmer's party, it was agrarian, you know, worldview. It had nothing to do with the big city Democrats of today's. Well, it's not entirely true. Maybe not Jefferson, but his allies, the Republicans of 1796, created the first urban political machine in Philadelphia, getting votes block by block. And that nearly elected him in that year. He nearly became the second president, and it would help to elect him in 1800. Lincoln's party could be considered liberal or even radical, and it was and they were liberal or radical on the most important social issue of the day, slavery, and then following the Civil War, civil rights. But Republicans were also a pro-growth, pro-railroad, pro-Western expansion, anything that was good for business party. So in a sense, there's change in these parties, but not total change. They still have the roots that they had, you know, when Jeffersonian started the, quote, Democratic Party. 1790 or 1791, and Lincoln's party, the Republican Party, you could trace their development to the 1854 midterm. So what about those Whigs? Well, Whigs were the old parliamentary party in England, not the the party that was at the king's beck and call. I mean, they weren't disloyal, but they were in opposition often. That's why Henry Clay used the term for those who ran in opposition to Andrew Jackson, who he considered was running like a king, was running the country like a king. In 1832, those that took a stand against him, he called Whigs. And people took it as a, you know, a little badge of honor. They liked it. Well, United Whigs was anti-Jacksonianism. Yes, I made the word up, but, you know, you get the meaning. Clay, Webster, Calhoun, very different people, but united by the common dislike of Andrew Jackson. The Whigs lasted about 20 years from that 1832 up until about 1854, when two events, I would say, the death of Henry Clay and um, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which really tore the party apart. The Whigs elected two presidents. Unfortunately, both of them died, and they both left VPs who were not extremely loyal to the Whig party. The last Whiggish movement was the Constitutional Union Party of the 1860 election, led by John Bell, that competed against Lincoln in that general election. Those were the old Southern Whigs, the last hurrah of them. Some old Whigs in the South showed up after the Reconstruction as those Republicans who would start forming governments down there. Craig Edwards writes, Hello, Bruce. I really enjoy your podcast, and I heard you mention a few other podcasts you listen to. My podcast, called Solid Principles, leans towards a conservative viewpoint. So far, 11 episodes have been produced. This was a little while ago. 
and can be found here, www.solidprinciples.com. And uh, I suppose you can just go there, but to read the whole thing, it's slash index.php slash podcast. So solidprinciples.com slash index.php slash podcast. Some topics covered include cybersecurity, healthcare reform, the decline of the mainstream media, black conservatives, Obama's speeches, and more. Also, when you were talking about the realist conservatives and the emotional heightening aspect, I was happy to hear you mention this point. A while back, I coined the expression cringeworthy conservatives, and I think it might derail the GOP leading up to 2010 and 2012. Also, have you noticed how Obama seems to be sounding like Bush on a rand? Craig Edwards, uh, Solid Principles co-founder, solidprinciples.com. A while back, I asked on the Facebook site, if anyone has a podcast, I will mention your podcast. I support the podcast medium. I think that, uh, and particularly audio podcasts, I'm not enamored with video. There's a magic to radio. We, you know, they, they, it's, you know, Empire Sound. What else? What else can you say? Empire. Happy that you're doing that. Um, and uh, wish you luck with the podcast. That's all for today. My history can beat up your politics.com's the website. I want to plug the archive. A lot of good things there. There is a mayoral election in New York City. One of the podcasts in that archive is about New York City mayors. Very interesting uh, because there is a New York City mayoral election going on. Many other things there. Want to learn about the Secret Service. Want to learn about primaries, conventions, brokered conventions, guns in America. Religion in America, France, Britain, their role in American history, the commander-in-chief versus the appropriator-in-chief, the history of the Federal Reserve, sons and daughters of presidents, ex-presidents, quite a bit of topics there. A couple of exclusives that were never made available to uh, those who aren't in the archive. There's an examination of presidential rhetoric. And there's a podcast on representation. Thank you for listening. My history, my history can be to purepolitics.com. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.